Welcome to this teaching series, Alive and Free, Killing the Things That Are Killing You. And that's intense language, but it's intense on purpose. We stole it from Jesus from John chapter 10, verse 10, where he says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now that's not the part you amen, and you know that. This next part, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, amen? I wanna preach a message to you today that is personal and I hope practical about focus. And I wanna call this destroyed by distraction. Destroyed by distraction. So Holy Spirit, we love you so much. We invite your presence into all these places. We shut out distractions and we simply say, speak God, we're listening in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Take a seat and scoot in. Scoot in as you are taking a seat. For all those still trickling in the room, focus and distraction, destroyed by distraction. At the risk of sounding like a Debbie Downer, the word from that verse, John 10, 10, that has stuck out to me all week has been that word, destroy. It comes from the Greek word apoyume, which basically means to destroy or to utterly destroy. That's fun, right? What's interesting about that Greek word is it's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 10 when he says, don't fear people. Don't fear man who can only destroy the body. He says, fear the Lord. Fear God who can destroy, there's that word, both body and soul in hell. And that's, a, that's an intense verse. I think it should be noted today, the devil can't do that. He is the enemy of your soul, but make no mistake about it, he cannot destroy your soul. However, he can destroy your destiny by way of distraction. That it was Jesus we just read who promises us part of your new covenant package in Christ. It is possible to live a full and abundant life, but you know this, but it's worth hearing again. You know living alive and free is something so much more than just walking out of a church service fired up with some new merch. It takes killing the things that are killing your freedom and killing your focus, destroyed by distraction. I think one of the most underrated characteristics of Jesus has got to be his, his focus. I challenge you this week, go read just one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, four different biographies, if you will, of the life and ministry of Jesus told from four different vantage points, and just pay attention to how many times you'll see bad things, urgent things, and even good things try to distract Jesus from his calling and how Jesus remains focused the entire time. There's even a pretty famous scene where, where Peter, poor Peter, man, he, uh, he's just trying to, to innocently just, just be Jesus' confidence because Jesus tells the disciples, it's time for us to go to Jerusalem and you know what's gonna happen in Jerusalem. I'm gonna be killed at the hands of the Romans. And Peter, Peter says, Gee, just trying to be a good buddy. <laughs> He says, Jesus, we don't gotta do that. Like, we can find a different way. We don't have to do it yet. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So all of a sudden, Peter is associated with the devil just because he unknowingly tries to distract Jesus from his destiny. Jesus was laser focused. It was about a decade ago, I watched Stephen Furtick preach a message where he 
mentioned a European, an ancient European torture method. That was a weird sentence already, I know. But this torture method, um, they would take four different ropes and tie one end of each rope to, a, to four different horses and the other end to each of one person's four limbs. And the horses would run in four different directions. And as uncomfortable as that is to sit in and think about, I don't bring it up without a point because as brutal and barbaric as that was, as far as torture methods go, there was also a brilliance to it. The, the French called this specific torture method, if you haven't guessed yet, distraction. Distraction, pulled in, in four different directions, destroyed by distraction. And I can't help but wonder if sometimes that's how your soul feels trying to, to live pure in a world of distractions pulling you in every single direction, trying to parent in a world of distractions, trying to follow Jesus, trying to pray, trying to hear the voice of God in a world that's full of distractions pulling you in every single direction. You're just trying to stay focused on the things that matter most in a world of distractions, but more and more of your attention is being pulled in every single direction and your attention is the most precious resource that you have to give. For where you give your attention is the person that you become. The question is not, are you or are you not being discipled? The question is, who is discipling you? Who's getting your attention? John Mark Comer says, in the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. I wonder how many moments you missed even just this week because you were distracted from being present. I wonder how many open doors over the last decade you missed, how many opportunities from God, opportunities to, to love more, opportunities to succeed more, opportunities to become more, opportunities to grow more, opportunities to experience more, but you missed it because less important things got your attention. I wonder about the presence of God that is right here and right now, that God is omnipresent. His presence is no longer hidden behind a veil and his presence and everything that goes with it. His love, his peace, his joy, his fullness is right here, right now in this room. But how many know you can be here, but not really be here? Even because of a phone in, in your, your front pocket, you can, be, you can be distracted. Your attention can be divided, pulled this way and pulled that way. It's like, it's like the fullness of life that Jesus promised us in John 10.10 10 is right here for the taking. And the enemy can't destroy your soul, but he can distract you from your destiny, pulling you in every single direction. It's like we now live in a, a state as a nation and maybe as a world of chronic distraction, a dystopia of distraction, if you will. You wanna know what's crazy to me is in 2023, scientists and sociologists, guys, are using natural selection language, saying as the amount of distractions we have available to us continues to increase, and as we get more and more technology that continues to consume us more and more with infinity in our front pockets, that nature is going to select for those who can focus. I would say it this way, heaven forever then and there is for anybody and everybody who simply just puts their faith in Jesus. But living alive and free in the here and now, taking hold of the life that is truly life, 
takes focus. I'll say it this way, the future belongs to the undistracted. 2,000 years ago, Jesus told an interesting parable about some seed and some soil. And you know, when Jesus talks in parables, he actually, uh, he'll tell a story, but the story actually has nothing to do with the story. It's about a deeper spiritual meaning beyond the story. And Jesus will say, whoever has ears, in other words, whoever's focused, let them hear some life-changing truth. And he's about to tell us a parable that I, I really believe is gonna be helpful to us in a cultural moment of distraction. Matthew chapter 13, verses one through nine. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. I don't know why I just picture Lake Travis. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat or he got on his paddleboard and he, he stood on it while all the other people stood on the shore. And then he told them many things in parables saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, whoever is focused, let them hear. So obviously with that said, I wanna show you this picture of LeBron James that was taken on February 7th earlier this year with a step back jump shot in crypto.com arena in Los Angeles, California. And 10 seconds left to go in the third quarter against the Oklahoma City Thunder. LeBron makes that jump shot and he breaks the all-time NBA scoring record with this 38,388 point. It was previously held by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and they just always assumed, um, for like 40 years that guy had the record, they just always assumed it was untouchable and unbreakable. But LeBron in that moment broke that record. 38,000 points, you guys. Now my freshman year of high school, I was the captain of the freshman B basketball team. Was that braggy? I didn't mean for that to sound braggy. Um, we went one and 11, one and 11. And I think I, I think I scored between 80 and 100 points that season. 38,000 points is what we're talking about right now with LeBron James, okay? And he made that shot, and it, it seemed like the entire arena just erupted in a spirit of celebration. One of those moments of history where time stands still, and what I want you to notice is only one fan really watched it happen. Every single person in that picture is distracted by their phone, except for Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. And that picture struck a chord with people, went viral on social media with different captions like, Phil's a legend for that one, and the only person truly living in the moment and the only one to really, really witness history. I think people are drawn to this because all of us deep down have this sinking sensation that in some way and to some degree, life's happening and we're missing it. At the end of the movie, Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Walter is on a search for um, one of his heroes, this guy by the name of Sean O'Connell. 
O'Connor. And um, Sean is a, a photographer, adventure guy, and Walter tracks him down in the Himalayas while Sean is searching for snow leopards to photograph. Snow leopards are rarely seen. They rarely let themselves be seen. In the movie, they're called the ghost cat. And the quote is, because beautiful things don't ask for attention. I love that in a world where everybody's asking for attention. What does it look like to be a ghost cat to know, man, beautiful things don't ask for attention. That's another sermon. But Walter finally finds Sean and they're having a conversation and then Sean's got his camera set up and then finally a snow leopard shows up and Sean's just watching it. And Walter's looking at Sean and at the snow leopard back to Sean and finally says, aren't you gonna take the picture? And Sean says, sometimes I don't. He said, when I like a moment, I don't like to have the distraction of the camera. He said, this is for me and I, I just wanna stay in it. I don't wanna be pulled in a million different directions. I just wanna be right here. You know, after Jesus preaches that parable um, to the really large crowd, he dismisses the crowd. And this is now evening at the very end of a long day of ministry. The crowds are gone and Jesus, it's just him and his disciples once again. And um, one of them, and it has to be Peter again. Peter just probably comes up to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, like I know, man, the last time I asked you a question, you like called me Satan and stuff. And it's cool, like I'm, I'm not hurt by that, but... By the way, man, you and me, two peas in a pod. That soil and, and seed stuff, that was so good. We're like on the same frequency. I, I totally know what that means. But the other guys, they wanted me to uh, ask you if, if you would come and explain it to them like they're five. And um, I'm grateful for that because oftentimes I need God to explain to me explain things to me like I'm five, amen, anybody? And so Jesus is about to do that. And here we go, verses 18 through 23. Listen then to what the parable of the sower really means. When anybody hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. And if you grew up in church, you've heard this before. And I think we all kind of secretly, quietly like to believe, man, we're the good soil kind of people. I don't know about these other Christians, Jesus, but I'm, I'm, the, good, I'm, the, I'm the 30, 60, 100 fold yield kind of kind of follower of Jesus. But let me, let me quote a question I once heard Stephen Furtick ask about this parable. I think this is such a good question. Is the parable of the sower depicting four different categories of people or does it describe the four different conditions of all of our hearts at any given time? 
In other words, is it possible for the first hour of my morning when I woke up, those first few moments, I am undistracted and what I'm picking up what the Lord's putting down and, and I'm on the same frequency as him. And, but then as soon as my kids get up or as soon as I reach for my phone, as soon as I, I get the first email or text message that comes in, all of a sudden I have shallow soil syndrome and all of a sudden those moments are getting snatched away. And then all of a sudden by, by lunchtime, it's like I'm being suffocated out by the, the worries of this world and my, my to-do list. What I wanna show you today are three different ways I think this parable diagnoses each and every one of us with distraction in three different versions of it in hopes that it increases your awareness of the fact that all the life you're looking for and searching for is actually right here, the presence of God. And if you could walk out of here a little bit less distracted, a little bit less pulled in, in every single direction, then you might walk out of here a little bit more alive and a little bit more free. So that first type of distraction, we'll call it this, distracted by the devil, distracted by the devil. Somebody say, ooh, yeah, I know. Matthew 13, 18 through 19 again, here we go. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anybody hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, the devil, comes and snatches, somebody say snatches, snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Remember Jesus said the birds of the air, they come and they, they snatch the, the seed. You ever leave your snacks unattended at the beach for like 20 minutes, come back from swimming in the ocean and there's like 50 seagulls fighting over your Doritos? Mine, mine. That was the best I could do with a little bit of a cough. That's what the enemy, that's such a picture of what the enemy wants to do. Like the good seed, there is good seed. Right now, you, you positioned yourself in a place and a space where God is scattering all kinds of good seed all over your life. Life-changing truth in the form of seed. And the enemy wants to do, he wants to, he wants to snatch that seed away from you while it's still a seed, before it becomes something more. Like you, you'll show up to church and you will hear some life-changing truth straight from heaven, but before you even get to lunch today to talk about the message, you will get a frustrating email that pings on your phone. Somebody will irritate you in the lobby just by the look that they gave you. Someone will accidentally cut you off in the parking lot. An unhealed memory from three months ago will surface again. And before, before you even get a chance to see the fruit that that seed could grow into, because right now it's just a seed, before you even get a chance to see the fruit, it gets snatched from your life. You know how bad the devil wants to keep you from having any sort of follow-up conversation about every sermon you listen to? You know those moments where you, you actually get to sit down with a roommate or a spouse over lunch and you just ask the question, hey, what do you feel like God was speaking to you today? Or driving with your kids home from church. I mean, I've noticed my kids are two and five. It's already getting easier just to listen to music. 
but those times when you actually engage them in conversation and you say, hey, what did you learn about God in church today? You wanna know why those moments seem to be fewer and farther in between year after year? The devil will do anything to snatch the good seed away from your life before it grows into the fruit that he can no longer steal away from you. And so he, he's smart and so he knows if I can get that dream while well, it's still a seed, if I can get that good plan that God has for them while it's still in seed form, if I can get that one phrase that God wanted them to hear, that one, I, my life has been changed by phrases I heard at a conference, in a conversation, during a sermon that God used that went from seed, but it actually took root and changed me from the, and, and the devil's going, if I, can, if I can get that one phrase distracted, snatch it from them before it has a chance to do anything, destroyed by, because he cannot destroy your soul, but he can destroy your destiny by distracting your soul and pulling you in every single direction. You know, C.S. Lewis, he talks about the two great errors when it comes to thinking about the devil. And he says, man, one great error would be uh, thinking about him way too much. You can see the pendulum here. He said the other great error would be thinking about him way too little. In other words, you don't wanna err on this side. And, and sometimes like it wasn't the devil, sometimes you just made a bad decision because you were hangry and you were tired. And that wasn't Satan that just put a nail in your tire. That wasn't a demon who did that because he knew that you were gonna share the gospel in line at H-E-B. You just drove through a work zone. Like there's not a demon hiding behind every tree. You know what I mean? But at the same time, the other danger is thinking about him way too little or not at all. That's why you need to acknowledge, not elevate him, acknowledge him because he's going to try to steal from you and kill you and destroy your destiny either way. So you might as well acknowledge him because when you acknowledge him, now you can do something about him. John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, highly recommend Read with caution, because it'll get you, but it's so good. He says this, Satan doesn't show up as a demon with a pitchfork and gravelly smoker voice, or as Will Ferrell with an electric guitar and fire on Saturday Night Live. He's far more intelligent than we give him credit for. Today, you're far more likely to run into the enemy in the form of an alert on your phone when you're reading your Bible, or a multi-day Netflix binge, or a full-on dopamine addiction to Instagram, or a Saturday morning at the office, or another soccer game on a Sunday, or commitment after commitment after commitment in a life of speed. You know, whenever you're prepping for a message, you, you tend to go through whatever it is the topic that you're preaching about is all week long. I talked about this with Ryan and Ethan yesterday. I was like, dude, I'm gonna start, I gotta start preaching about joy more, you know? <laughs> or like prosperity, <laughs> you know? Um, because no joke, I have had the most distracted week of my entire life. Almost, it's almost like a comedy. It's almost like a, a Ben Stiller movie where everything that could distract him from doing the things he needs to do actually distracts him, you know what I mean? Like we have had maybe the busiest month schedule-wise of our entire lives. I've had this stupid cold for like nine days that just won't go away. And I've been getting good sleep. I'm staying hydrated. I'm doing all the stuff I need to do and it just won't go. And every time I've gotten even like a moment to sit down and message prep, 
I, it's, it's crazy, man, like how I'll get like that email or that, that phone call with that little fire to put out at just like the like perfect wrong time, you know? And then, and then even two nights ago, um, I, we had an event, but I wasn't feeling good, so I stayed home and I put the kids to bed thinking, okay, now I have some moments of peace and quiet. I can sit down and I can write a sermon and then a migraine hits and I can't do anything. About, I can't write a sermon. All I can do is just wait it out, wait it out through the night, slept like two hours. And then the next morning it was just me and the kids. And so I, I just put a movie on for them and I sat down because I knew Saturday night services are coming up in like five hours. And I sat down to finally put some pen to paper and then all of a sudden Will, my five-year-old, he comes up and he's like, Daddy, I wanna play baseball in the backyard. And Kinsley, my two-year-old, wants to put on her pink flower girl dress and go twirl for me on the couch. And I'm thinking, God, like all the distractions, this is crazy. This is crazy. I was like, God, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not planning like a bank robbery heist. I'm trying to prep a message, a sermon for you. I'm trying to build your church, help me out. And... Um, one of those heavenly father, earthly son moments, very clearly felt him impress in my heart. Hey pal, the sermon prep is the distraction. How many sermons have you preached? How many times have I come through for you? I know you like to prep, I know you work hard, I got this. The sermon preps the distraction. You got this. And if you didn't preach, one of the other guys would preach, but no other dad can go watch her twirl on the couch. Go watch her twirl. Go play baseball in the backyard. But God, I don't feel good. Suck it up, go play baseball in the backyard. Will's gonna be five once. Kinsley's gonna be two once. Father in heaven, let her only be two once. I can't do it again. <laughs> don't miss it. Don't miss it, man. You've got like five to 10 it's this week. Don't miss it. That's the life that is happening. And the enemy wants to just snatch those moments away from you. It's like seagulls with your Cool Ranch Doritos. If you're not careful, a flock of everything urgent is gonna show up trying to snatch the few things that are important the few people that are really important, distracted by the devil. Don't miss that, amen? The next is the rocky ground. Jesus says this in verses 20 through 21. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The second thing that distracts us is hurry. So I'll phrase it this way, distracted by the doing. Because we're just too busy and too hurried to put roots down. Who's got time for roots? Roots are painfully slow. You know what else is painfully slow? Love. Ask any parent, ask anybody in any kind of thriving friendship, relationship, marriage, love is painfully slow. It's painfully slow to put roots down. The life and the freedom in Christ that is available to you that your soul is desperately searching for, it's not over the next horizon. It's not in the next relationship. 
the next marriage. It's not in the next job. It's not waiting for you in the next city. It's in the ground beneath your feet. What's the saying? The water's not greenest over the horizon. It's greenest wherever you water it. Question is, can you, do you have the grit? Do you have the fortitude? Do you have the patience to put down the roots, to tap into it? It's the presence of God that's right here. Do you have the, do you have the patience? What does Paul say when he describes love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? That's quoted at about 50% of weddings. Love is patient. The very first thing he says, love is patient. It takes roots. This is a quote by John Ortberg. If this doesn't get you, you're a robot. I love it. For many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim. You kind of feel like the, the shallow soil, the, the surfacey way of, of living life. We just skim our lives with no roots instead of actually tapping in, instead of actually living them. Anybody else sit down to spend time with God and you feel like in three minutes time, your attention is elsewhere and it's just so, it's getting harder and harder. I mean, that's why the future belongs to those who can control their precious attention. I want that because the world has changed so much since June 29, 2007, the day that Steve Jobs set the iPhone free into the world. And now pretty much all of us are either addicted or highly dependent. If you wake up in the morning and the first thing that you need to do is reach for a drink, it's a sign of addiction. If you wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is reach for your phone, I mean, we just have to honestly answer the question, do, do I have a phone or does my phone have a human? Because busyness is the biggest badge of honor in our culture today. And now with your phone, you now have an opportunity to never not be busy. And busyness is not necessarily bad. Jesus was busy. Busyness can be the sign of a full life. But it's our chronic over busyness that begins to create an internal state of hurry in your soul. So busyness is an external schedule. Being hurried is an internal soul condition. So much so, psychology today defines something called hurry sickness. This is not a joke, this is real. And after I read you the definition, I'll let you diagnose yourself with it. Hurry sickness, a behavior pattern in which a person feels chronically short of time. And so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay is when you have that, that constant, continuous sense of, of rushing when you're at the grocery store and you change checkout lines to the one that's a little bit faster so you can get out in one less minute so that you can make, that, you can make it before that next red light so you can get home two minutes sooner. And when you pull up to that intersection, you count the cars in front of you, there's three cars in your lane and you change to the lane that has two and you feel just more chronically irritable than you used to and little things and tiny little jabs that shouldn't get under your skin and shouldn't bother you. Just are, they, they feel bigger than they used to feel. And even when you pause to rest, your, your soul is restless and it can't slow down. And when you're with loved ones, you don't really feel present and you no longer have time for the basic human needs like cooking a healthy meal, forget that, or exercise, forget that. And the basic spiritual needs like prayer and reading your Bible, those are the first things to go. And therein lies the problem with hurry. 
because that is where you connect to your source. John 15, remain in me as I remain. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And Jesus walked everywhere. The average human being walks at three miles an hour. Love moves at three miles an hour. God is love. Not all love is God. Love is not the deity we worship, but our God is love. He walks at three miles an hour. That's why hurry is incompatible with love. Corey Ten Boom once said, if the devil can't make you sin, the devil will make you busy because sin and hurry have the same effect on your soul. They both cut off your connection to God. Technology was supposed to make things more efficient. This is another thing I learned from John Mark Comer's book. Um, he talked about in the 1960s as time-saving devices were being invented. So think microwaves and think vacuums and think dishwashers. Once again, not a joke, true story. Sociologists were really worried that our problem in the future would be too much leisure time and not enough to do. And there's a famous Senate subcommittee in 1967 that predicted that because of technology, we'd have so much free time by 1985 that people would be working 22 hours a week for only 27 weeks a year. So what happened? Because the technology worked, efficiency worked, but what do we do with all that extra time? We filled it with more stuff to do, which is why the solution to your busyness problem is not 25 hours in a day. It's God's mercy on your life. You only have 24 hours. Because if you had an extra hour, you'd fill it with more stuff. Your soul would even be even more hurried than it is now. The solution's not more time because the problem is not that we don't have enough of it. The problem is a, is a human heart problem that if we had an extra hour in the day, we'd fill it with more stuff because we, we, need, to, we need to do more because we need to prove ourselves. We need, we're running from something. We, we can no longer just be, just be present in the moment, undistracted with God and with ourselves. And we, we skim our lives instead of actually living our lives and no time to nurture good and healthy roots to connect with God. And that's why we, we all are buying into the lie that the love and joy and peace that you're looking for is in the next new city. It's in the next new chapter. That brochure is promising you everything you're looking for, you'll find here. When in reality, it's in the ground beneath your feet right now. You're just so hurried that you don't have the grit or the fortitude to, to put down roots, to tap into it. Find yourself just skimming across the surface of life, not really diving into the moments. You think about the parable Jesus told where you have the seed that was in the shallow soil, so something sprouted quickly, but there was no root. So it gave the impression or appearance of life, but life is in the roots. He said, as soon as the sun came out, as soon as the going got tough, as soon as it was a difficult season, the beautiful thing that started to grow got scorched. As a pastor, you see this all the time, man. I pray about it all the time when you see people just maybe on Easter or they get so excited about their faith and get baptized and, and it's so, it's so, you can tell if it's only emotive or if something true and lasting is taking root. As soon as the emotions wear off and the honeymoon phase is gone, what happens? Was it 
based on that, dependent on that, or was there something deeper happening? Roots being put down. Because everything you're looking for is, is not in your circumstance or the emotions that you feel, but it's in the presence of God that you're discovering is right here and right now. I don't want to be distracted by, by the doing. Amen? And then last but not least, and team, you can come up, distracted by deceit. Matthew 13, 22. The seed falling among the thorns refers to somebody who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. Worries and wealth. So something begins to grow, so much potential, but it's worries and it's wealth that have so many things in common with each other. Both, have, both will distract you, both can be deceitful, both have a way of commandeering your mind. Worries have a way of commandeering your mind like it's a little boat out at sea in a storm. And those worries just come like the wind. And when they do, you just, you just go with them and they start to drive you along. That's why if I was the devil, I would run that play all game long because he doesn't even have to do anything. He can suffocate the next season of your life out just by making you believe something, just by making you believe it. The worries of this world the, come like the wind and you just, you just are driven along by them. Those fears, those worries, the I just know my, my husband's gonna cheat on me because my dad cheated on my mom even though my, my husband's not my dad, I'm not my mom. But, and the devil can suffocate out the beautiful season God's trying to write in your life just by a worry. The best is behind me. The world would be better if I wasn't here. Nothing good happens to me anyway, so why even try? And so let me just sever my boat from this anchor called hope and let the, the worries of this world, like the wind, just push me into the doldrums of dread where it's like talking on the phone outside when it's windy. Have you ever tried to do that? You're like, hey man, what's, it's just, you're like, dude, I didn't hear anything that you said. I'm sorry. I feel like that's kind of like trying to hear the voice of God surrounded by worries, worries that come just like the wind and just are so good at drowning out the voice of God. So just to, just to be practical and maybe helpful for a moment, discerning the difference between the enemy's voice, the voice of, of worries and the voice of your heavenly father, maybe this will be helpful. Maybe you just need this in your season right now. God's voice will always direct and protect. The enemy's voice will doom and distract. God will use conviction to push you forward. The enemy will use condemnation to pull you backward. God will sometimes speak warning to you, but God will never create worry within you. He speaks his promises to fortify your faith, but it's the enemy that speaks lies in order to panic and paralyze your faith. So if you're a worst case scenario kind of person, I can just tell you with full confidence that is not the loving voice of God trying to caution you with wisdom. It's not. It is the devil's voice trying to suffocate you with fear, trying to choke out what God wants to do in you and through you. God is scattering beautiful seed across your life. You're being suffocated by worry. You're being distracted by deceit. It's the worries of the world and it's, it's the, the deceitfulness of the wealth of the world. You know what's interesting about wealth? Wealth is a good thing. Wealth is a great thing. Wealth is a heaven thing. In fact, 
followers of Jesus who know how to create wealth, we need more and more and more of. Because that, that, those are kingdom builders who can truly change this world. Wealth is a good thing as long as it's a means, as long as it's in its proper place. The moment wealth goes from a means to now it's an end, it starts to choke out what God wants to do in you and through you, making you now unfruitful. The fruit of the spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the self-control, the, the fullness of everything that your soul is really looking for. Everything that you buy, what you're really trying to buy is the fruit of the spirit. I say this to you all the time, billionaires with all of their good wealth can't buy the great fruit. God forbid you get everything you wanted in this life and you find that you succeeded in all the things that actually won't matter in eternity. Because you can aim, man, just for worldly fortune and you might find some of it and you, you probably make some, some money and, 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 and build some wealth and that's good. It's just small. It's just small. It's when you fix your focus on forever. It's when you, you set your sights on starting to live and give with eternity in mind that not only do you store up for yourselves 30, 60, 100 fold in heaven forever then and there, but I think you'll find you also start to begin to take hold of the life that is truly life in the here and now, the kingdom fortune. Y'all know what I mean when I say kingdom fortune? I mean the righteousness for your salvation. I'm talking about the, the fullness of actually living and walking in purpose that everybody's desperate for. I'm talking about the peace of God's promise provision over your life. I'm talking about the joy of playing with house money. I'm talking about the life that is truly life, living alive and free, the kingdom fortune. And oftentimes when you aim just for the world, you might get it, but you might, you might find that's all you get. But when you aim for heaven, not only do you get that, but I think you find you can get a lot of this thrown in along the way because you go from a vault that stores into a vessel that stewards and now you're part of a story bigger than yourself. If I've learned anything about the blessing of God, it's like a river, man. It just, it flows until it's blocked. Don't block it. Be used by him and the story he's trying to, the good seed he is scattering over your life. Today, right now, it's a seed. And if it gets choked, by worries and by deceit, if it gets scorched by the sun because you're too hurried to put down roots, if it, if it gets snatched away by the devil before you even have a follow-up conversation, then that seed is all it will ever be. But you protect it and you let that thing take root. You let that one phrase that God gave you today from heaven start to turn into something in your heart watch as it begins to change your life. Amen? Red Rocks, will you stand? I'm gonna read the last verse as we're standing together. Matthew 13, 23, this is the good one. This is the good soil. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was so, you know, Red Rocks Church um, started back in 2005 in Colorado. 
which by the way is why it's called Red Rocks Church, in case you're wondering. I have people ask me all the time, did you mean Round Rock Church? Like that would make more sense in Austin. But in Colorado, there are beautiful Red Rocks all throughout the foothills of the Rockies. And Scott Brugman and his wife, Lori Brugman, are the OGs of Red Rocks, the ones who started it back in 2005. And um, in Golden, Colorado, in the back of a creepy theme park, and we are blessed to get to stand on their shoulders and our ground was their ce- is their ceiling. And for the first few years, man, those guys had no salaries and it was a, it was a rough beginning. And Scott one night um, was out to eat with a, a very well-meaning congregant from the church who slid a check across the table for a very, very large sum of money for the church, but it had strings attached to it. And this was an amount of money that could just change the budget completely, but there were strings attached to it. And Scott, man, this makes me proud because this, this is our blood, this is our DNA. He had the humility and the perspective to graciously slide the check back and say, thank you so much, but the vision and mission of Red Rocks Church is not for sale. It's not for sale. We exist to make heaven more crowded by helping as many people as possible know God, live on purpose, and go change the world. That's what we're here for. And we're not gonna be distracted. Because you know what's crazy when you're a growing church and the same thing's true in your life when you're starting to, to thrive and live a little bit more alive and free, distractions will begin to show up on your front door, knocking on the front door, disguised as really good opportunities. Really good opportunities. But I wonder this week if you could have that same sort of spiritual swagger as Scott, when the birds of the air come, when the sun comes out to scorch, when the deceitfulness of wealth begins to suffocate, to the vision, the calling, and the destiny that God has placed on my life is not for sale. My attention is the most precious resource I have to give, and it belongs to God. Because if I know my Father, and I know my father has good plans for me. And I wanna see what those seed form good plans look like when they grow into something the devil can't touch, amen?